0: Alright, alright, alright. Hello, my paranormal pal. You have made your way to Renegade Files, your covert connection to paranormal events and unsolved mysteries. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, coming at you from the Jungle Villa outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files episode 21, the Rendlesham Forest UFO Incident. For three nights in a row, following Christmas in 1980, strange lights were seen moving through the trees of Rendlesham Forest, just beyond the boundaries between RAF Bentwaters and RAF Woodbridge in Suffolk, England. At the time, RAF Bentwaters was occupied by the US Air Force, and the then UK American Joint Venture Air Base was NATO's largest, and the location secretly housed a cache of nuclear weapons three Air Force security personnel ventured into the woods in pursuit of lights they saw maneuvering among the dark trees of the forest. Their reports prompted further investigations on the subsequent nights when the lights were seen again and Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt, who initially went into the field to debunk or find an explanation for what the men had seen, wound up seeing and chasing the unidentified flying objects for several minutes. Subsequent sightings, a landed craft, and trace evidence were quickly examined and even more quickly covered up. Since then, the stories have grown and the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident has entered such legendary UFO status as to be referred to as Britain's Roswell. So join me, fellow explorer, as we take a trip across the pond and back to the Cold War in the 1980s to investigate the Rendlesham Forest UFO Incident. The Rendlesham Forest UFO Incident. The Rendlesham Forest UFO Incident. The Forest UFO Incident. The Part 1. On Patrol In the cold early morning hours on the day after Christmas in 1980, military security officers were on duty patrolling the fence lines within RAF Woodbridge, a US manned airbase in Suffolk, England, which is north of London and just inshore from the southwest British coast of the North Sea. RAF Bentwaters is a second airbase that is situated about four miles north of Woodbridge, and the Rendlesham Forest lies between the two. In the early morning hours around 0300, the patrolman saw a red light descend from the sky into Rendlesham Forest about a mile beyond what is known as East Gate, which is a gate that marks the perimeter of the base and closes off a road that leads into the forest. These men called into headquarters and other security officers nearby hearing the radio traffic came to join them. Together they watched the glowing red light move among the trees then change into a bright white hazy dome. The patrolman called Staff Sergeant James Penniston who was informed that there was a possible downed aircraft at the base perimeter and that they were sending Airman Ed Cabanasag to pick him up. Cabanasag and Penniston joined Airman 1st Class John Burroughs, Sergeant Randy Smith, and Airman 1st Class Richard Bertolino, among others who had met up with the other patrolmen at the East Gate. All of these men saw a glowing dome-shaped light in the woods. Sergeant Penniston described it as a whole canopy of forest with a white bubble of light over it. Penniston, Burroughs, and Cabanasag exited the base gate and walked into the woods to investigate. The men were unarmed, forced to leave their weapons on RAF Woodbridge property due to a treaty with Great Britain. Airman Ed Cabanasag would later say that he thought it was a prank. He was new to the Air Force and to the base, having only been there for three days, so he thought that they were leading him to a pond to throw him into or something like that. But it was no prank on the new guy. As the three men moved toward the glowing light in the forest, Airman First Class Richard Bertolino and Sergeant Randy Smith, who had stayed behind, moved to a location called Bunker Hill, which was the highest ground they could get to on base. This position gave them what Airman Bertolino described as a great triangulation between the object the men in, in the woods, and the remaining security patrol back at the gate. Penniston, Burroughs, and Cabanasag moved cautiously through the dense, dark trees of Rendlesham Forest on their way toward the eerie glowing light ahead, armed only with flashlights and radios, the frozen ground cover crunching under their boots their chilled breath adding plumes of mist to the forest fog. As they came to twenty or so yards from the edge of the light, it vanished, leaving them surrounded by darkness, their swinging flashlight beams glancing from tree to tree. No weapons. Vulnerable. Burroughs called back to gate security to ascertain any input they might have about the light. Had it ascended? Could they see it anywhere? But as he did, he found that he could transmit and receive only static. The other two radios malfunctioned as well, and the men knew they were alone. And now they were cut off from backup. Burroughs said that they began to notice an electric charge in the air. Their hair stood on end and a static electricity effect crackled with every movement, with every step. The men said that they then experienced a bizarre slowing of time and motion. They had the sensation that each step and footfall took twice as long as normal and they had the dreamlike feeling of being forced to walk in slow motion. They had to consciously struggle to push forward and move through what felt like increased gravity and slowed time. After a few minutes, their walking gradually returned to normal and they looked at each other in silence. They kept going. They heard farm animals in the distance begin to howl and cry out in what they described as a frantic commotion. Then the men saw a dim red glow in the clearing ahead and they slowly advanced. As they came to the final rows of trees before the grassy opening they saw a craft on the forest floor. Peniston and Burrows moved toward the craft as Cabanasag held a position several yards behind them to watch the trail behind and to watch the other men's backs. Peniston said the craft was black, had a triangular base, and was shaped somewhat like a pyramid, except that it had a ledge about halfway up that intersected with a dome on top. There were no visible windows and the entire object seemed to be seamless and solid. Multicolor lights swirled under the craft's surface and they seemed to be part of the material itself. It was as smooth as glass and had markings etched into the surface. Blue glowing geometrical shapes. The craft emitted a faint glow beneath it. It was silent. Peniston made notes in a notebook of the craft's size, shape, appearance, and he made detailed drawings of the markings on the surface of the craft. Peniston says at one point he reached out his hand and touched the glowing symbols on the craft. He said the body of the UFO looked and felt like smooth black glass. But the integrated markings felt coarse, like sandpaper. Burroughs said the craft silently lifted off, moved with dexterity through the trees, then was gone in the blink of an eye. The three men returned to Eastgate, where they told Airman First Class Bertolino what they had seen. He said, quote, you could tell something had happened to them. At this time Bertolino also saw the notes and drawings made by Penniston in his notebook. This confirms that Penniston had made the notes and drawings while in the forest or at least not later. They drove back to the base to find men in civilian clothes waiting for them. These men took Cabanasag and Penniston to another area, away from John Burroughs, and Burroughs said that after this, the other two men refused to talk about the incident with him. What was said to all of them we may never know. Cabanasag said that the men took him to a small room and all they ever said to him was, "'What you saw was the lighthouse. What you saw was the lighthouse. What you saw was the lighthouse.'" They said this to him over and over for nearly an hour. The next day, Penniston and Burroughs went back into the forest to investigate the area. They found the spot where the craft had landed and discovered three depressions in the ground that formed a perfect equilateral triangle with each depression being exactly 9.8 feet apart. The depressions were each round 1.5 inches deep and 7 inches in diameter. They also found that several of the trees surrounding the small clearing were broken and that many of the surrounding trees displayed burn marks on the trunk 6 to 8 feet up from the ground. After measuring the depressions, Penniston went to get plaster then returned to make casts from the three circular indentations on the ground. While placing the dried casts in his vehicle, Penniston was approached by Air Force officers Captain Mike Rano, Sergeant Regolius, and a uniformed British police officer. At that time, Penniston told these men of the landing site, and they proceeded to the spot... While there, these three men took seven photographs of the location, the indentations, and the general area. These seven pictures are the only official photographs that we know of that show the scene immediately after the incident on the first night. That morning at about 6 a.m. on the morning of the 26th, The first daylight after the initial sighting, second-in-command at the base, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt arrived on duty and first heard of the events from the night before. From the early morning several hours before and this night before or early morning hours before has caused some confusion for researchers and it's a good example of why military time is superior to the general AM-PM system but it is worth noting here that the whole last night early this morning language caused even commander of the base Halt to make a mistake in his initial report of the events and this is unfortunate really because it is often used to discredit much of what Halt has said but, moving on. It was on Halt's insistence that additional statements were taken from Penniston, Burroughs, and Cabanasack. Later, Halt would visit the location to take radiation readings, and we will get into that event in just a minute. First, I want to go over a few other cooperating sightings. The next night, Airman Lori Bowen was on patrol duty in the same sector of the base when, at 1300 hours, she saw a glowing multicolored light descend into the forest. She would later learn this was the same location where the object had landed the night before. Bowen drove to East Gate to be sure that the gate was secure, While parked there, she watched a small, glowing blue-white light about the size of a softball emerge from the forest edge, move rapidly toward her position, stop just outside of her windshield, enter her vehicle through the open driver's side window, pause at her eye level for a few seconds, then exit through the opened passenger window and fly away into the woods at a shocking speed she was so disturbed by the incident that she had to be relieved from duty and her relief was confirmed by Lieutenant Colonel Halt. At the same time as Bowen's odd sighting, Sergeant Rick Bobo, a guard on watch in one of the 50-foot weapon storage area guard towers, also saw a multicolored light in the sky over the forest and he described watching several other smaller lights emerge from this larger object, then slowly descend into the trees. He said that he had been on guard duty in the same tower multiple times over the course of many months and that there had never been any light in the area where he saw these objects. He called this sighting into his commander and in minutes a man in civilian clothes who displayed no credentials and no military rank was allowed by security personnel into the watchtower with Sergeant Bobo. The sergeant said that under any normal circumstances, no one was allowed into the tower on a guard's watch. But this man was escorted into the tower by base officials. He stayed for about 30 minutes, watching the lights move over and down into the forest the entire time. He never spoke, and then he just left. The next evening was the base Christmas party and the topic of all hushed conversations was the strange lights and the general mystery of the goings-on around the forest and while no one would have said it over a whisper, the term UFO was on many people's lips. It was amid the Christmas party that the word came in that the lights were back. The higher-ups in attendance pulled Halt aside and basically told him, Get out there and get this thing sorted out. Lieutenant Colonel Halt proceeded to Eastgate in the middle of the night and he went with the full and expressed intention of finding a rational explanation for the whole thing. He took a star scope, which is a military night vision implement, a Geiger counter to measure radiation at the scene, and a portable tape recorder to record notes of the mission. With him was Sergeant Monroe Nevels, Airman Bruce England, that's E-N-G-L-U-N-D, England was the first to see the lights on the night before, and Sergeant Bobby Ball. There were also at least 25 other people gathered at locations such as the East Gate within the base, the aforementioned Bunker Hill vantage point on base, and a few other strategic points along the base perimeter and the forest edges. These additional personnel were instructed by Halt to hold their positions unless called forth by him and he took his team into the forest to the landing site. They recorded radiation in the clearing that was stronger than the background radiation of the surrounding area. The strongest levels of radiation were at the center of the triangle formed by the depressions, within the depressions themselves and on the sides of several trees surrounding the clearings where the tree trunks showed visible burn marks but as he and his men moved through the forest they too began to see multicolored lights moving around the trees the lights moved among the trees and kept just beyond their clear sight as Halt and the others pursued on foot The objects moved into a clearing and the men emerged from the edge of the forest to stand awestruck as they looked with their first clear view to watch a glowing red object hover silently over a farmer's field to the west of their location. At this point, Halt says the object was low, 15 feet from the ground, just to the left of the farmhouse, and looked to be about the size of a car. The object was so bright that it lit up the field and the farmhouse in the distance. The dry winter grass in the field and the farmhouse glowing red before their eyes. According to Halt and confirmed by the others with him, they watched as the object divided into five smaller objects. The five red lights remained in stationary positions, equidistant from each other, And in a straight line parallel to the ground for 10 to 15 seconds, then they all simultaneously vanished. The men crossed the field, came to a small creek, and crossed it to continue into the field beyond. As they did, they saw two other glowing red objects, one in the north and one in the south. The southern object moved in and stopped directly above them, emitted a white beam of light about one foot in diameter that stretched from the silent craft 400 feet above down to the ground a mere three yards from their feet. The men started to back away, but within five seconds the beam was gone as was the craft above them. At this point, Halt decided to return to base and as they made their way back toward the forest, they saw a red light over the base and it emitted a similar beam down toward what Halt estimated was the weapons storage area. Halt radioed to the guard at the WSA tower who positively confirmed the object as hovering over the weapons storage area and emitting a white beam down onto the bunkers at the facility. As if this case needed any further intrigue, we also have another account of the event on this night from Larry Warren who was a young airman first class at the time and he had just arrived at the base days before. On the night that Halt and the others pursued the UFO to the farmer's field, Airman Warren was on perimeter watch duty. He claims that he was taken from his post to deliver equipment to the forest edge on the farmer's field side and that once there he witnessed 50 or so Air Force officials as well as uniformed British policemen congregated in a circle, many of the Air Force personnel being high-ranking officers, most with cameras or video recorders, and that they all watched, photographed, and filmed the scene as a small delegation of Air Force officers approached a landed triangular craft and interacted with alien beings. Now, Lt. Col. Halt believes that this version of events is part of a deliberate disinformation campaign generated by high-ranking agents in the U.S. intelligence community and orchestrated to discredit the events and testimonies surrounding the UFO reports on record. He suspects that Airman Warren is the victim of some kind of mind control operation and even Larry Warren himself told researcher and former RAF policeman Gary Heseltine, quote, I do not know what's real and what's not, but that's my version of the events, end quote. That is the basic rundown of the initial sightings by the patrolman on the first night their investigation of the scene and measurements of the landing depressions and observations of burnt and broken trees the following day and then the subsequent debunking excursion pursued by Halt which ended up in one of the most credible and fantastic UFO encounters of the modern era to get a feeling for exactly how incredible this event was we are lucky enough to have the audio tape recorded by Lieutenant Colonel Halt on that legendary night It has come to be known as the Halt Tape. The tape is just short of 20 minutes long, but most of the first half or more is the men taking radiation readings at the landing site. It is interesting, and you can read the tape transcript or listen to the entire Halt Tape in the dark intel files for this episode by clicking the Patreon link in the show notes or from our website at therenegadefiles.com. For now, we'll start the tape just before the men first see the UFO, then we'll hear their audio notes as they pursue the first light, then see multiple objects. The main voice is Lieutenant Colonel Charles Halt. The other voices are Sergeant Bustenza, Sergeant Nevels, and Lieutenant England, and for the most part, they are just answering questions from Halt. The content of what they're seeing is easy to follow, and exactly who is saying what is not terribly important to this piece of evidence. You can find out exactly who's speaking on the tape in the tape transcripts if you want to. Okay, this is cool. Here we go.
1: 0148, we're hearing very strange sounds out of the farmer's barnyard animals. very, very active, making an awful lot of noise a pigmentation. You just saw a oh, light. Yeah, Where? 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 Right on this position here. Straight ahead in between the... Tr- there it is again. Watch. Straight ahead off my flashlight there, yeah, There it is. Hey, oh, yeah, I see it too. What is it? We don't know, sir. can I get some... Yeah, it's a strange, small red light. It looks like uh, maybe a quarter to a half mile, maybe further out. i switch off the light is gone now. It was approximately 120 degrees yeah, from the site. Yeah. Is it back again? Yes, sir. Oh, that's the flashlight, set. Let's move out to the edge of the clearing so I can get a better look at it. See if you can get the star scope on it. The light's still there, and all the barnyard animals have gotten quiet now. Yeah, we're heading about 110 to 120 degrees from the site out through to the clearing now. Still getting a reading on the meter. About two clicks. Meter's jump, three to four clicks. Getting stronger. Now it's uh. That's coming up. Hold up. There we go. It's about approximately four foot off the ground. It's coming about 110 degrees. I just turned the meter off. Got to say that again. About four feet off the ground. About 110 degrees. Getting a reading of about four clicks. Yes, sir. Yeah, but it <coughs> now it's dying. No, it's dying. I think it's something other than the ground. I think it's something that's. Tree right we just went the first night bird we've seen. We're about 150 or 200 yards from the site. Everything else is just deathly calm. There is no doubt about it. There's some type of strange flashing red light ahead. it's yellow. I saw a yellow tinge in it too. Weird. It, it, it appears to may be maybe moving a little bit this way. It's, it's brighter than it has been. Yellow. It's coming this way. Also, it is definitely coming this way pieces of it are shooting off yeah, there is on. no doubt about it this is weird to the left yeah different no, the two, left. two two lights two two one light to the front okay. one light to the left keep the flashlights off here's something very very strange get the headset on see if it gets any All stronger right. okay Let, give us give us some rotation it is on a beta reading too it's on a beta reading but it okay. still has been removed okay this is are falling off it again But it just moved to the right yeah Strange. When oh, we're well, going to get a Let's approach to the edge of the woods up there. Can you want to do without lights? Let's do it carefully. Come on. Okay, we're looking at the thing. We're probably about two to three hundred yards away. It looks like an eye winking at you. It's still moving from side to side. And when you put the star scoop on it, it, it sort, sort of has a hollow center, a dark center. It's, it's yeah, like a pupil of an eye looking at you and winking. And the flash is so bright to the starscope that uh, it almost burns eye. We passed, yeah. passed the farmer's house and across in the next field. Now we have multiple sightings of up to five lights with a similar shape and all, but they seem to be steady now rather than a pulsating or glow with a red flash. We just crossed the, the creek and uh, we're getting what kind of readings now? Getting three good clicks on the meter and we're seeing strange lights in the sky. At uh, 244, we're at the far side of the second farmers, the farmer's field and made sighting again about 110 degrees. This looks like it's clear out to the coast. It's right on the horizon. Moves about a bit and flashes from time to time. Still steady or red in color. Also, after negative readings in the solar field, we're picking up uh, slight readings, uh Four or five clicks now on the meter. 305, we see strange uh, strobe-like flashes to the uh, Rather sporadic, but there's definitely something uh, some kind of phenomenal. 305, at about uh, 10 degrees horizon, uh, directly north, we've got two strange objects, uh, half moon shape, dancing about with colored lights on them. But it uh, gets to be about 5 to 10 miles out, maybe less. The half moons have now turned into full circles. I so, all there was an uh, ellip- eclipse or something there for a minute or two. We're at 0315 now, we've got an object at 10 degrees directly south, 10 degrees off the horizon. And the ones in the north are moving, one's moving away from us. It's moving out fast. This one on the right away
0: too. Yeah, we're both heading north.
1: Okay. Hey, here, here, he comes from the south. He's coming toward us now. Here. Now we're observing what appears to be a beam coming down to the ground. This here. is unreal three thirty and the objects are still in the sky. Although the one to the south looks like it's losing a little bit of altitude, we're turning around, and heading back toward the, the base. The object to the south, the object to the south, is still beaming down lights to the ground. Zero four hundred hours, one object still hovering over Woodbridge base at about five to ten degrees off the horizon, still moving erratic and similar lights and beaming down earlier.
0: That is awesome. It's obvious that what these men were seeing was not some mundane object like a star or a spotlight. They moved across the farmer's field and looked back toward the base and saw one object over the base, which was them looking in the direction exactly opposite from the lighthouse, so it's not the lighthouse, and we'll get fully into that later. That audio tape is one of the most amazing bits of UFO evidence ever captured and made available to the public. But anytime I investigate a UFO case here on Renegade Files, I always look for any corroborating witnesses. In this case, there are several who have gone on the record. We already talked about Airman Lori Bowen who had the small ball of light fly into the interior of her vehicle and understandably freak her out. And we know about Sergeant Rick Bobo, the tower guard who saw a multicolored light divide into several smaller lights and move into the forest. Both of these events on the night before Halt went into the field with his team to investigate. Civilian Jerry Harris saw the craft from his backyard that looks across a field toward the edge of Rendlesham Forest just days before the incident at the airbase. He said it was silent, and that he watched the object perform maneuvers, moving vertically, then descending, then moving horizontally, over and over for 45 minutes. He decided to jump in his van and drive across the field road into the forest to investigate for himself. He was stopped by two men, one a military policeman and the other an English policeman, who made him turn back. On the day before the main Rendlesham UFO sightings, Captain Lori Renfelt, this is a different Lori, was on security patrol duty at RAF Bentwaters when she saw a UFO as well. She initially thought it was an aircraft landing at the base, but the runway lights never came on and the craft did not land on the runway. She said that the light became very bright white, made several definitive movements with abrupt right angle turns, then split into three smaller lights which proceeded to fly directly over the airbase runway at a low altitude and at an incredibly high rate of speed. This account mirrors the description made by Halt that also described an unidentified object dividing into multiple objects. Also, at Bentwaters, the day before, Sergeant Randy Smith saw an orange glowing light in the woods along a fence line he was patrolling. Altogether, we have the first three airmen, Lori Bowen, Rick Bobo, civilian Jerry Harris, Captain Lori Renfelt, and Halt, and the men with him, also Sergeant Randy Smith, that's at least 12 individuals providing reports of UFOs that we know of for sure and by some accounts there are others Part 2 The Aftermath The days following this string of incredible UFO sightings generated several pieces of evidence testimony and added unusual events to this already amazing case The base commander at the time was Colonel Gordon E. Williams. This would have been Halt's superior officer. As the commander of the 81st Tactical Fighter Wing, Williams was stationed at RAF Bentwaters. Colonel Williams asked Halt to submit a report to the RAF British liaison to the American Air Force at the base. This was a document that Halt, according to him, did not want to write. This was his career, and you can be sure that this was a page of writing that was considered very carefully by the author. It has come to be known as the Halt Memo. It is dated 13 January 81, and the subject line reads, Unexplained Lights. In the very first line of the memo we have an error. It reads, Early in the morning on 27 December 80, approximately 0300 L., Two U.S. Air Force security police patrolmen saw unusual lights outside the back gate at RAF Woodbridge. Okay, so the error is the date. This initial occurrence took place at 0300 on the 26th of December, not the 27th as Halt writes in the memo. Halt says he wrote the letter from memory. And that the dates were not that important because the memo was meant to convince the british ministry of defense to do their own investigation into the matter since it had occurred on british soil that was outside of the raf site and in the forest where the u.s air force had no official authority he said that at the time he did go back through the records but could not find the base logs for the dates in question so he just did the best he could John Burroughs wrote in a 2008 forum post that he believes that the dates were written incorrectly to confuse the issue and cause problems deliberately or to form the basis for discrediting the stories. And if that's the case, it may have worked because debunkers are quick to point out this inconsistency, but in the end, we're talking about three days and events that took place at times like midnight and 3 a.m. So do you say that 3 a.m. is on friday night or saturday morning it's both and the dates in the memo aren't off by weeks it's just a matter of getting the wee hours of the morning mixed up and i don't look at it as a big deal it is unfortunate though moving on more witness statements were gathered from other witnesses on the nights in question several airmen including burrows Cabanasac and Penniston were questioned by OSI, that's the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and by other unknown officials. Unmarked and unscheduled aircraft landed at the base and it is rumored that these flights delivered exotic technology experts who were there to inspect the landing site. Another solid document is called the Halt Affidavit, which was notarized in June of 2010 in it, Halt once again summarizes the events in one page of eleven sections. Section eleven reads, The security services of both the United States and the United Kingdom have attempted, both then and now, to subvert the significance of what occurred at Rendlesham Forest and RAF Bentwaters by the use of well-practiced methods of disinformation. His commanding officer at the time of Halt's retirement, Colonel Ted Conrad has criticized this document saying quote he should be ashamed and embarrassed by his allegation that his country and England both conspired to deceive their citizens over this issue he knows better however Conrad also acknowledges the events remain unexplained another facet of the aftermath of this case concerns the medical records of many of the people involved Penniston and Burroughs have fought a long, drawn-out, red-tape nightmare of trying to get the Air Force to release their medical records that they claimed held evidence that they were adversely affected by radiation they were exposed to while investigating the landing site and coming close to or even in contact with the UFO while it was landed, and they even went so far as to petition then-President Obama to get these medical records released. As recently as this year, I have read that the men have finally succeeded in getting what they needed in order to get their medical treatment they deserve, and that's good news, but it's too bad they had to spend over 30 years to get it done. One final note on what has happened since the sightings is that there is an entire sequel of additions to the events given to us by Penniston. It seems that around 2010, Peniston revealed that when he touched the hieroglyphics on the craft back in 1980, that he lost his sense of sight and hearing and was engulfed in white light, and that ever since he has been plagued by visions of binary code. He worked with an expert to decipher the code and then we have Linda Moulton Howe becoming involved as well as a team from Ancient Aliens and the full documentation of whatever this code was translated into has never been fully released to the public. This entire white light, blindness, and deafness of the transmission of binary code into Penniston's waking mind only emerged 30 years after the event and after many regressive hypnosis sessions that Penniston has taken part in. Those are just the facts. Part 3. The Official Debunking The first official explanation we will look into is the lighthouse. The main narrative used to explain the Rendlesham Forest UFO incident falls into that category of the official explanation being more improbable than the paranormal event. Official Air Force documents claim that the entire Rendlesham Forest UFO incident was the misidentification of the Orford Nest Lighthouse by those who claimed to see UFOs. If we believe that the Orford Nest Lighthouse beacon was the light that caused the Rendlesham Forest UFO sightings then we must also believe several other suggestions that it implies. First, we must believe that a lighthouse that is six miles from the East Gate at RAF Bentwaters, and which has stood at that same location for 188 years at the time of the sightings, caused U.S. Air Force police, who patrolled the same areas night after night, to suddenly think, for three days in a row, that this brick tower lighthouse beacon was a UFO. Second, this lighthouse would have had to project a three-dimensional triangular craft onto the forest floor where James Penniston, John Burroughs, and Ed Cabanasag came upon it, where Penniston touched it and drew diagrams of it, and that this lighthouse beacon also caused Penniston to draw the markings he saw on the craft. Third, we must believe that the lighthouse fooled Lieutenant Colonel James Halt into traipsing through the woods, across fields, across a creek, and caused him and the three men he was with to imagine that they were seeing things that they were not. When Halt and his team emerged from the forest and first saw a clear view of the car-sized glowing red craft, they said it was 15 feet from the ground and to the left of the farmhouse. From their vantage point across the farmer's field, the lighthouse is above and to the right of the farmhouse roof line. So this discounts the official version that tells us these men saw the lighthouse beacon. This object also illuminated the side of the farmhouse facing the men, which is a feat impossible for the lighthouse since it is a few miles on the far side of the house and high above it. The object seen by Halt as it moved back over the base and projected a white beam onto the weapons storage area was also seen by the WSA Tower Guard, so that person too would have to have thought that a lighthouse that he can see from his tower post night after night, year after year, was a UFO overhead. The civilian witness who reported red lights over the fields would also have to be confused by a lighthouse that he could see every night from his own backyard. There are other impossibilities, but I think that's more than enough. The lighthouse explanation is a joke. The second explanation put forth is that what Halt saw on his excursion into the field were stars stars are not red for the most part and they don't fly down to 15 feet above the ground they don't shoot beams down at your feet and they don't hover then divide then fly away to return a lieutenant colonel in the air force knows what a star looks like there was also a meteor that entered the atmosphere around this time and broke apart and some debunkers claimed that this is what the men saw but the meteor only fell on one night and just for a few seconds at most Ian Ridpath wrote a fairly convincing debunking article called the Rendlesham Forest UFO Case and I'll link to that plus all of the pictures, the airman's drawings, maps of the bases and forest and many other documents you can check out in the Dark Intel Files on Patreon where you can support Renegade Files with a few bucks which helps me make the episodes and keep them ad free. Just follow the Patreon link in the show notes and I'll see you in there. Ridpath's article cleverly suggests that the Rendlesham Forest UFO event was a combination of all of these debunking ideas. He concludes that some guys saw the lighthouse, others saw the meteor, and the lieutenant colonel saw a star. This is the kitchen sink approach. I guess the idea is that if you put a bunch of implausible concepts into one concoction, you get something believable. I don't buy it. The final explanation used to debunk the Rendlesham Forest UFO case concerns the markings left on the ground in the clearing. Skeptics claim that the marks could have been made by rabbits, and in fact this was also the conclusion of the British police officers who were called into the scene by the three airmen who initially had the encounter the depressions formed a perfect 9.8 by 9.8 by 9.8 foot triangle each hole was the same size and depth and the grass was pressed down into the depressions rabbits dig to make holes and they would have dug the grass away the depressions also according to Halt displayed radiation levels that were higher than what would be considered normal background radiation for the area as did the broken and burnt trees surrounding the clearing rabbits can't do that and some have suggested that the readings taken by hall and his team of the radiation levels were incorrect the Department of Defense at the time also thought this might be the case so they sent a team to take readings at the landing spot and they did discover that the radiation readings Halt had recorded at the site were in fact wrong but that's because the readings that the Department of Defense team recorded were actually higher than the levels that Halt had found my summary Dang, what a case. This was a story I knew I would get to on the Renegade Files and there is so much going on here you could spend years looking into it and many people have. The Dark Intel Files post on Patreon for this episode is one of the largest ever in terms of numbers of articles, sources, documents, and information. You can check out the Rendlesham Forest official blog from that list to see one of the most comprehensive collections of data concerning this case available anywhere. That site also has a bunch of other cool stuff as well. That's the Rendlesham Forest official blog. This has always been one of my favorite UFO stories. I believe the accounts of Peniston, Burroughs, and Cabanasag who saw the UFO on the first night. I believe Halt and his team and the audio recording is really cool. But that does bring me to the first of a few questions I have about all this. Halt's recording, it's great, but why not a camera? This was the 1980s. We had good cameras back then. And I can understand that the first guys on the first night might not have a camera. They were caught by surprise by the whole event. But when Halt went out there the next night, he knew there was supposedly a UFO about. He was going to try to explain it all away how is it possible that he would not take a camera if even to take a picture of the weather balloon or burned out flares he hoped to find to debunk the sightings and set it all to rest this begs another question did he have a camera i'd like to think he did and that the pictures have just been buried and covered up somewhere but if he did have a camera or if someone on his team had a camera, we could expect to hear him talking about taking photos on the audio recording and we do not hear that. But there are sections where the tape cuts out, or was cut. If you listen to the HALT tape carefully, you can tell it has been spliced, or it sounds like that those spots are always right after they see the lights and we may never know but the missing gaps of tape could very easily have recorded Halt saying get a picture right there take a photo of that thing I got it I think I got a picture just then I got a picture of the red light and the beam man I hope the picture comes out it's one of those things pictures would be awesome maybe they do exist and maybe we'll get to see them someday On the subject of photos, there are seven photos that surfaced when the photographer sent them to the UK newspaper, The Sun, in May of 2021. The photos were supposedly taken at the time that Halt and his team were chasing the UFOs. The person who took the pictures was a young man, 18 at the time. And he was a hunter poaching in the forest and that's why he never came forward with the pictures. It's a high crime to take the queens, dear. The photos are black and white and they absolutely show the orbs in the forest and two of the photos show a very clear image of a bright white beam coming down from an object overhead. The pictures are cool and they look like posters from some scary movie. Some people have said that the guy waited until Photoshop was invented before making the pictures public, and that is funny, but it's not, strictly speaking, true. Photoshop has been out for decades. You do wonder why the guy waited for 40 years, but who knows. I don't know if the pictures have been analyzed by anyone to verify them in any way. They look genuine, and they do show some version of what we have heard in the descriptions. I think this might be a case of what Art Bell described when he said that we have entered an era where any photo of a UFO will forevermore be instantly debunked, because if it's bad, people say it's too blurry to tell, and if it's good, they just say it's Photoshop. Art Bell was ahead of his time. Art Bell is a legend. Speaking of the late, great Art Bell, he had John Burroughs on his show, Midnight in the Desert, on September 17th, 2015, and I'll put a link to that show in the Dark Intel Files, too. It's a classic. Art Bell is a legend. As for the transmission of binary code into Penniston's waking mind 30 years after the fact, it's interesting, I guess. We don't know what the messages are anyway, and it doesn't add much to the story. The Larry Warren story is the same thing. That's the guy who says that there were 50 or so officers filming the UFO and aliens coming out of it and chatting with the brass. I think that's a diversionary tactic. Halt thinks so too. Warren himself has said he doesn't know what's real and what's not, and he spent a long few days in the hands of some intelligence handlers before coming out into the sun with that story. Fishy. The debunking of this UFO event is more outlandish than the event itself. We find this a lot. The lighthouse and the stars. Silliness. Another thought I keep having when looking back on the case as a whole concerns the first three guys who made the report on the first night, Penniston, Burroughs, and Cabanasack. In a perfect world, those guys should all have the same story, and they don't. The first guy sees a red light go down in the woods. He calls the second guy over. They call Penniston. He meets them at Eastgate. They call headquarters, who gives them permission to leave the base and investigate. They go into the forest to check it out. They see lights moving among the trees. They come to a clearing. Cabanasag hangs back to watch the trail and the guys' backs. Penniston and Burroughs go into the clearing and see a UFO landed on the ground. Penniston draws it, he draws the symbols on it, and he touches it. The two of them watch it fly away, and the three guys go back to the base. I just find it hard to believe that Penniston and Burroughs wouldn't turn back to their buddy who's within eyesight of them and say, hey man, forget the trail for a second, there's a UFO up here, come check it out. I mean there's only three of them out there, they aren't even on base property. There isn't some complex protocol going on like a bunch of navy ships moving around in a bay, it's three guys in the woods and two of them are looking at a flying saucer on the ground. You wouldn't call your buddy up to see it, even if to just be sure you're not going crazy. But that brings up the second point here. Not only do these men have different stories, their stories cascade down in drama and detail from Penniston to Burroughs to Kabanisak. The whole shape and material and markings and touching the craft, that's all Penniston. Burroughs always stops short of describing an object and goes no further than to say a glowing light. He does say he saw the glowing light in the clearing and that it flew off just like Penniston says the craft did, and Cabanasag just says, we saw some lights in the trees. If Peniston drew it and touched it, you would think that Burroughs would say, yeah, exactly, that's what it looked like. But he never does. So there are two possibilities here. Well, there are many possibilities, but I think there are two most likely ones. One, Peniston made the whole thing up. The guys saw some lights, Peniston took it a bit too far and drummed up a physical UFO embellishment. And the other guys are his friends. They're not gonna throw him too far under the bus, but they're not gonna go that far along with him either. They just stick to saying it was lights and that's that. That's the skeptical viewpoint. And as I've said, it is a possibility. But I think there's another possibility here too. And that is that these three men have different stories because they have different career goals and ideas about how to accomplish whatever those are as they make their way through the military. Burrows and Cabanasag could just be taking a more cautious and conservative approach to what they say about that night because they have their own self-interest in mind. They also might think, well, Peniston already drew the thing and described it in detail. If that's important to this or if that'll help anyone in the chain of command concerning this whole thing, then they already have it. I'll just say I saw lights, which I did, and that I don't know what it was, which I don't, and leave it at that. We also have Halt in the farmer's field describing an object the size of a car which is about the same size as the object Penniston drew and described. So my official opinion on Rendlesham a UFO? Absolutely. But that is keeping with the literal definition of the term it was in the sky it was flying and we don't know what it was aliens from another planet? Impossible to say without more proof. Penniston and Burroughs have said as much. They know what they saw. They know it was unusual and real. They can't and won't say it was alien greys. At the same time, all three of these men have also said that they believe the cover-up is not about secrecy, it's about power. They believe that what's being covered up is some exotic technology and that wherever it comes from, it is being held under wraps because anything that can fly without propulsion could potentially solve the world's energy crisis and the status quo wants both the energy and the practical military power of this exclusive control over whatever this technology is. As for that proof I'd need to definitively say that this case was an alien craft from another world, I think I'd have it if Lieutenant Colonel Halt did have a camera with him that night, like I speculate he did, he would know if that were the case. So what does he think in the end? Then Lieutenant Colonel Halt was eventually promoted to full colonel and he retired in 1991 after 28 years in the Air Force. In the last paragraph of his famous affidavit, he says, quote, I believe the objects that I saw at close quarter were extraterrestrial in origin. Thank you for coming with me to Rendlesham Forest. Go ahead and share Renegade Files with that one crazy friend you have by sending them our website at therenegadefiles.com. Thanks. Tune in next time when we dive deep into another fantastic tale of intrigue. I'm your fearless host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, nature child.